This is Everybody, and usually I would say welcome back to This Is Sting. This is part three, but for a lot of you, well, I don't know. You probably went back and listened to the first two before you turned this one on, right? But this is the first, first run episode of This Is Sting on the free EE feed. Uh, so thanks for listening. Hope you've enjoyed the first two. If you haven't listened to the first two, you should. Although, I guess I'm sure we'll talk about stuff that uh, will still excite you in, the, in part three. But it's a lot of audio, so check it out. Uh, and there will be at least a part four. So <laughs> uh, buckle up, get excited. We're going to talk today about seeing in WCW from 1995 to 1999. I guess if you're a new listener for some reason, I'm Aaron, and I'm joined by Mike to talk about Sting. Hey, everybody. Yeah, this is, I guess, the first time we're of the that we're putting this straight onto the uh, free feed. And this used to be a Patreon series in the previous incarnation of EE. And this is kind of what Aaron and I are interested in doing for a while. So that's what we're going to be doing occasionally on this feed from now on. Exactly. If you listen to the last episode of uh, EE 3.0 then you should understand what's happening here. If you didn't, it's just we're kind of planning to, me and Mike, keep doing stuff just as it interests us and as we put it together. So no schedule, no timeline, no... uh, There's no... I was going to say no universe of topics, but I guess pro wrestling is, you know, it's going to be in that universe. Uh, Unless we start talking about the 2012 NCAA season, which I am very well-versed. I would love to. That's a. We were talking about 2011, 2012? Uh, 2012, 2013. Okay, less. I'm, I'm much less interested in this. <laughs> oh, yeah, because I, I forgot the class you had leave after 2011, 2012. Yes. The, the next class, headlined by Nerlens Noel, who then got hurt right at the end of the year. We didn't have a point guard. That's not connected, but we also didn't have a point guard. Uh, so, yeah, we'll talk about pro wrestling, but it's not going to be just people related to AEW it could be anybody or anything so we'll see but this is Sting we're gonna talk about Sting today all right so presumably you just listened to part two but I'll just get you caught up quickly Hogan Hulk Hogan if if you're not familiar with who Hogan is has shown up in WCW Uh, he and Ric Flair at Bash at the Beach 94 did huge business and that was also a retirement match. So Flair, Ric Flair is retired. <laughs> so yeah, it the, they got the guy, and they're like, "How do we handle the guy?" And <laughs> yeah. I mean that that's just like a it, that that's something that I would love to see. And I know there's no way we're going to be able to see it, Aaron. I I want to see the pitch deck for bringing in Hulk Hogan in ninety four ninety five because mm. other than uh, what was it? Uh, Weekends of Thunder. 
Like the if that's what they were pitching towards them, man, what an easy fish to land. Yeah, absolutely. So he's here. Sting is a supporting character in the Hogan versus Dungeon of Doom story. Uh, sadly, if this were a TV show, I would I would show the it isn't even hot clip right here. Yeah, this, this is where on episode two where we're talking about Hogan and his friends, the ones that he have, that he himself has creative control over what they do. This is a lot of that. A lot of the Dungeon and Doom where people like Shockmaster, uh, uh, Brutus the Barber Beefcake, and others that were basically Hogan's buddies. And this is something that, you know, when you bring in Hogan and you give him the caveats he did, this would happen. But I don't think anyone anticipated like that he would immediately be doing stuff like this. And of course, Dungeon of Doom, Jimmy Hart, his best friend. So right. you, you have already given the guy essentially the keys to the kingdom. And within 12 months, he's already basically just going to his base and saying. And Randy Savage has also joined WCW uh, basically right before this episode starts. All right, so we get in, well, I guess I should also say, you know, I have my own uh, agenda on these episodes, and one of them is that uh, Dave Meltzer is just wrong about Sting. Hey, we're going to be attacking all the muckrakers in this series yeah. for one way, for one reason or another. But yes, no, Dave Meltzer, for many reasons, is wrong about this and should listen to more wise and people like us. So. And the, the interesting thing about it is you can, which I intend to continue to do in this episode, prove that Dave Meltzer is wrong only by using Dave Meltzer's reports. You don't even <laughs> have to look at anything else. I mean... Think about how many words Dave has written at this point that like he's basically providing anyone like don't even bother with his Twitter. Just go through the text of what he said and you could Swiss cheese him basically if you want to be. I mean, he's hoisted on his own petard. All right. So we go to the Wrestling Observer newsletter from March 6, 1995. We're talking about Super Brawl and. Uh, Meltzer writes, on television, it didn't appear many of the guys got big reactions other than Harlem Heat, Nasty Boys, Sting, Randy Savage, Flair, Vader, and Hogan. Reports live are that Hogan got a lot of boos, although it didn't sound like that on television, and that the two most over faces were Flair and Sting. So obviously I've included this because constantly Dave is including reports that Sting is the most over guy in the company basically, regardless of what else is going on. Uh, but also including this to say that we're starting to see the fans who are actually at the shows turning on Hogan. And that obviously is going to loom large soon. Right. And the fact that they were still cheering for their JCP favorites and Flair and Sting is basically the story of the last five years of WCW. The fact that they completely did whatever they could to alienate this core fandom and they were left with people who chased, you know, the big names and like the NWO at the end. So we're already seeing evidence of that there, that the fans are rejecting the product that they are being presented by Eric Bischoff. I think this also undermines 
Dave's point that we talked about in the last episode, that when they got down to this hardcore fan base, they rejected Sting as champion because he couldn't work like Flair could. But the crowd, that same small crowd, is responding to Sting at the same time. So I think there are, and we didn't go like heavy into the business of WCW at this time. Uh, probably will if I ever make it to 94 in my, my other series. Uh, but that isn't a series, by the way. But I think there are a lot of other environmental reasons for the house show business and TV ratings while Sting was the champion. Right, yeah. I mean, that's what I went off on a huge tangent about, about late 80s, early 90s in the Southeast. It just, like, the the the, the problem that I think, and this comes from, like, the Meltzer side of analysis, is an unwillingness to look environmentally at what's going on, only looking in wrestling as a, like the city of Krypton under glass. Like it, it, it's not dependent on other factors. And there's just so many different things that when Singh got that run in the early nineties, I mean, I, I, I would have to line up dates and stuff like this, rise of CNN as the major cable, uh, just viewer viewership like i mean that the first iraq war basically put cnn so far out ahead of everyone else on cable that everyone scrambled to create their own news stations so absolutely it's completely unfair if you're going to do that to sing and you don't acknowledge the environment of which that this is all is happening and those factors then you you have to basically give everyone the exact same even playing field and that's something that i think that we've been proven over the last 40 years that Dave Meltzer is incapable of doing. And that's, it's true even today. I mean, when people see the numbers that come out, you know, an AEW number will come out, oh, it's under a million without looking at what sort of viewership everything else was doing on television that night. You know, it's, it, everything is environmental. We talked about that forever um, when we used to talk about ratings a lot, but it, to this day, continues to be ignored. Yeah, so when you like look at this and you also look at the uh, this and the auspices of Clinton era economy and Clinton era 90s, like it makes sense how badly Super Brawl did at that point because it was right before coming out of that that slight recession. So that on top of where WCW initially catered towards like you and unless like like I know Beach Blast wasn't necessarily had this as an issue unless you're running in that core area if you look at WCW versus the rest of the country it's not like that they went and go went to the LA Forum every time and got fifteen thousand like it, it it was a regionalized promotion that went national and you're bringing in national stars that could only really draw for their audience which is not what you promote so like no wonder. Right. And I didn't dig into this, uh, but there is a lot of evidence around the time that Sting was champion because of the recession that you're talking about. You know, WCW was primarily, even though they were trying to go national, were still primarily running in the Southeast and in a lot of the places that were hardest hit economically, a lot of towns that were hardest hit economically. I know we talked about that some on uh, episode two or part two of this series. So, that certainly played in, but we can we can move on from that. I'm sure we'll bitch about it much more in the future. Uh, the Observer from March 27, 1995, Harvey Schiller, the former chairman of the United States Olympic Committee and commissioner of the SEC, 
know, current head of TBS Sports, uh, became the chief overseer of WCW. He replaced Bill Shaw. You know, Harvey Schiller doesn't play a large role, but the key here was that he left Eric Bischoff essentially in charge, although Hulk Hogan uh, is is even more is made even more powerful by this, as Dave writes. Uh, although, if anything, his power is more solidified because it is believed the new company direction under Schiller is to produce more of a children's oriented product and place greater emphasis and focus, if that's even possible, on Hogan. Yeah, so Harvey Schiller is an interesting person. He does not necessarily fall into the bad presidents that Kip Fry or Jim Hurd fell into. He just was someone that, like, with how like of a bit how big of an apparatus Turner was at, at Time Warner was in the '90s, like that's something that happens concurrently with the rise of WCW in the time period we're talking in. I mean, we're talking about a superstation suddenly becoming like a cable monolith. All the while, your billionaire owner also owns half of the sports city and basically runs the city of Atlanta. So someone like Schiller, I mean, is like Hurd and Fry being brought in, not necessarily for his bona fides, though it's a lot more similar to the USOC and pro wrestling than Pizza Hut. But it uh, like the biggest thing he did and probably the smartest thing he did was step aside for Bischoff, at least in that initial period, because, I mean, he, he wouldn't be around very long. He would be shuffled uh, to like the Thrashers when Turner had got the Thrashers right when it came in there. And he was on the way out before WCW really fell apart. It just he's just one of those like one of the many names that comes in and out of WCW office politics. As we move on to WCW Uncensored, we see Sting being heavily phased down. Uh, the finishing story of the show is that the big faces in WCW are Hogan, Randy Savage, and Renegade, who was supposed to be, you know, WCW's answer to uh, the Ultimate Warrior. He just, you know, looked and acted exactly like uh, Ultimate Warrior. Yeah, uh, Renegade. Like, this was something that WCW... But like this was the last big one before they would tr- that they would shift into a different way of marketing towards kids. Where like they would do so many either ripoffs of other wrestlers or just children's characters like Kawabunga, but like all the different Brad Armstrong gimmicks where they just put him under a mask and the same thing that they did with what's his name, blanking on his name, uh, tag team, uh, not Art Don. Uh, the, 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 the Louis Spicoli did some of them. It was Louis Spicoli. That's who I was thinking of. <laughs> I didn't know so, where you were going. I was trying to help. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was thinking about Los Gringos Locos, and I was like, no, I'm not thinking about, what's his name, Love Machine. I was not thinking about Love Machine. I was like, no, the other guy, he was referred to as Madonna's boyfriend because he was fat in Mexico. Oh, it was Louis Spicoli. Louis Spicoli. That, that, that's how my brain operates, right? And I, I was a huge Louis Spicoli fan when he was uh, a big WCW character. Oh, yeah. I mean, kind of like in a weird way, kind of like forged the way for schlubby power wrestlers. <laughs> he ruled. OK, uh, now we're getting into, you know, the big story of this time frame and it will lead to, you know, everything. So Observer, June 19th, 1995, in a stunning move stemming from the meeting between Eric Bischoff and Ted Turner on June 5, WCW will be adding a new television show every Monday night going head up 
with Monday Night Raw on the TNT cable network starting August 7th. The day that probably changed more in wrestling history than I think most people realize. Because what Raw was before Monday Night Nitro, like that's what Aaron's referring to. Monday Night Nitro was introduced and in how television wrestling uh, has been since then has been was changed by just by the fact that Monday Night Nitro became a thing. So and uh, and and the way that they would posture people leading into the debut of Nitro is a big thing as well. Yeah, the early Raws are like you know your normal syndicated television show basically it, yeah it's, it's like cable wwf superstar yeah uh august 1495 dave writes hulk hogan is telling people he's willing to drop the title to sting at starcade although we heard that same story at this time last year uh, just a little interesting pin to put in uh, but we head into the first nitro and in the september 11th 95 issue of the observer dave writes which god i wish i could have gone more into this but this Got left on the cutting room floor. A backstage brawl between Leon White, Vader, and Paul Orndorff apparently led to renewed negotiations that resulted in Lex Luger shockingly walking on the set for the debut program of WCW Monday Nitro on September 4 to set up a WCW title match with Hulk Hogan on September 11th. Remember when people just didn't wear collars on their shirts, Aaron? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> like, that, that, that's the thing about Lex Luger. Like, that goes down like the puffy shirt. Lex Luger, no collar, dress shirt. Collar all the way up. Like, and that's 95. That's late for that kind of fashion atrocity. You know, I mean, other than wrestler brain being five years behind the time. You say wrestlers are just behind the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're still seeing wrestlers and overalls. Like to this day, you ever think oh, about that? Overalls are trendy now, brother. Uh, I I defer to you on that, but wrestlers and overalls. So there was a a Sting versus Ric Flair match on the debut episode of Nitro, and Lex Luger uh, walked down the aisle during the match and smirked. Uh, and this will become important, particularly important to our episode here. Uh, Sting wrestled Flair. Flair defeated Sting by disqualification as a result of a run-in by Arn Anderson to attack Flair. Can't, it's, can't be fair to Flair right there. Can't be fair. That's right. That's right. Uh, so now they're doing a thing where Flair's begging Sting to be his partner. Sting's turning him down. Uh, he finally agrees to team with Flair because Flair does a thing with a bunch of... Uh, kids and face paint and sting is like i can't even i can't believe that even rick flair would stoop so low as to use little stingers in a way to you know swerve sting so he's in yeah i i mean if there's things that sting loves it is trying to speak spanish and it is (laughs) the little stingers out there so got right to his heart strength uh, Wrestling Observer, October 2395. The latest on the Flair-Sting situation is this. The original idea was for Flair, Anderson, and Pillman to turn on Sting at Havoc. About a week or so back, Sting changed his mind only three months after the idea was proposed to him, and he agreed to do it, thinking it would make him look stupid. Some believe it was Lex Luger who talked Sting into this way of thinking. The idea of Lex Luger being like, that's not going to work <laughs> for you, brother. That's going to make you brother. look stupid. Lex Luger telling you you're going to look stupid. <laughs> L- 
well, let's just take a second and consider the stakes of that. Lex Luger, uh, yes. of all people. Sting proposed the idea where they try to turn on him, but he would escape having outthought them and not get beaten up, which doesn't create much heat coming out of the situation. But Sting also does come out uh, looking stupid. This is, is written correctly, shockingly. But he should have nixed it months ago rather than going through with the deal for this long and then changing his mind. The best idea of all would be for Sting to turn since it would be a big shock, create tons of new potential main events and keep Flair as a face since he's the most popular wrestler in the company right now. So uh, we go through from this. We have Fall Brawl. Sting teamed with Hogan, Luger and Savage to defeat the Dungeon of Doom in a War Games match. And folks, if you've never seen this, I just I strongly recommend it for a lot of them for hilarity's sake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, this is one of the matches that helps develop the War Games uh, sad uh, <laughs> lineage, I guess. Is yeah. the way to put it. The, I, we didn't talk about all these guys. So the Dungeon of Doom on this uh, match is Kamala, Zodiac, Shark, and Ming. So Shark is John Tenta, just so yes. people know another hogan guy but like but like he's the hogan guy that everyone likes everyone liked john tenta you know yes. no, no, no one had it all i think it's this so zodiac is ed leslie aka brutus the barber beefcake so you know i mean you gotta face two of hogan's boys there ming, is Haku, ming. If, if you don't yeah, know yeah yeah ming i i assume that people knew that but ming also but that's a but ming is like florida crew though like I, I, yeah. I think everyone who wrestled in Florida include Ming in their crew because it's Ming, and they don't want to get on Ming's bad side. I was saying also, if you're Hogan and you're like a a politician backstage, you're gonna be smart enough to get one of the actual tough guys on your side. Yeah, and I mean Ming's reputation then probably is even more of a tough guy than it is now. I think like people see Grandpa Bullet Club Ming, and they they forget that this guy was like. The scariest person backstage, basically for an entire generation, was Ming. Like people, if Ming's on a show, people don't don't act up backstage. Still, to they shouldn't. And that takes us to October 29, nineteen ninety five. Sting and Ric Flair versus Arn Anderson and Brian Pillman. This is the first match that we're going to discuss on this episode. We usually do five matches per this is episode. I came up with. What is it? 21 matches or something? 15? I can't remember. A lot of matches. 16. We're at 16 at this 16. point. 16. So it's for part two and three, it's split up three and three. So we'll talk about three specific matches. The original idea of this is was to, well, once we went to five matches, was to just do an overview of the career by focusing on five matches. I went insane digging into Sting and decided to just cover like every minute of his career, basically. So the matches kind of get lost a little bit, but I think they still help. <laughs> Hey, I, I mean, I did not discourage Aaron from going Howard Hughes sicko mode on this, but, you know, he, he, he shows up with, like, a big giant list of things, and he's wearing napkin over his privates. I'm not going to ask questions. That's right. Well, I'm going to uh, let you cook here, Micah. Just tell me your thoughts about this match. So this match is a lesson about being over. This is a lesson that people who uh, subscribe to the anti-Steve Borden narrative as propagated by one Dave Meltzer should take stock and watch this match because the first 
18 minutes of it. It, it it's a two-on-one because rick flair's hurt backstage so it's all based on sting being over and the fact that sting is so over and he's so like he's able to really like handle them one-on-one but whenever they're whenever arn anderson kind of is able to pull a wily trick he's able to kind of uh get knock him back down which is like a good way to treat your baby face in this kind of scenario that it's like oh he's able to handle one and it doesn't make the heels look like complete jokes because the one on two baby face so they they worked this really really well and timed it just excellently so so when rick flair gets out on the apron the crowd is absolutely percolating they do a huge pop for rick flair coming out but then Ric Flair gets tagged into the match here, and, and one of like the biggest reactions in wrestling history happens as the crowd goes insane. Sting has tagged in his arch nemesis, who's finally come to over to the good side, who's who is injured, who is wrestling in slacks, Aaron. He's in slacks. He gets tagged in. He gets revved up. He gets revved up. He's ready to go. He's going to take out Arn Anderson. You know, he's going to go after Brian Pillman. And then he immediately does a uh, forearm to Sting, and it's a three-on-one beatdown. The crowd just goes apeshit at this. Just th- like stuff being thrown into the ring at this treachery. And this is a no contest, and one of the coolest no contests that one will ever see. I, I mean, yes, you're exactly right. It's I hate when people say the thing I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. This is not one of the best matches of all time, but it is one of my favorite matches of all time. The way that Brian Pillman eats shit in this match, yes. it, it should be like a lesson for anyone playing an undersized eel. Like, Austin Gunn, you're great, sweetie. We love what you do here, <laughs> but you should watch this. Go tell uh, go tell his son that you, you need to learn like character from your dad because great heel eating shit Brian Pillman is. Yeah, it's it's a great lesson in being able to get cut off as the heel in a match. And that's even harder, as Mike was saying, when it is a two-on-one match. And yet, both of these guys, Arn and Pillman, who both great in their own ways, uh, just were perfect at getting cut off here. And obviously, we're focused on Sting. And this match, the reason I picked this match, not just because I love it, but... It's another example, as we talked about in the last episode, with the Cactus Jack match, where because they're doing the brawl, you have a lot of opportunities to hide Sting's weaknesses, which are largely about the time in between things that happen. Like, he's not very, he's not always very fluid on offense. Uh, There's just can be real pauses in between action. This is a great way of hiding that because he's got to deal with two people. So he kind of constantly has to be moving. And I think that works really well. Uh, and you also see from Sting here just how great of a baby face he is, not just from the, you know, Ricky Morton style selling, but just the pure hatred uh, on the strikes on Flair when he gets his hands on him for a little bit. Just Sting is magnificent in this match. And you know who's also great in this match, of which we've not talked about on this series yet? Bobby Heenan. Bobby Heenan. Oh, yeah. When when Ric Flair, because at this time, Heenan has already jumped over. Like, everyone is in place now. Like, most of the core characters for Sting's story from here on out, they're all here now. But just Bobby Heenan, and before Bobby just treated WCW like a paycheck 
the way that he really like just like was special in the Bobby Heenan way of being special and like being a heel, but then seeing what Ric Flair did. And even as a heel, like having righteous indignation going, you did all of this flair. You are a scumbag. And, and it's not even being said with like him, like laughing the way that Bobby Heenan would laugh at heels doing scummy thing. Like he felt aggrieved. Like, and that's, we could tell that it's a great performance when the heel commentator is, is sticking up for the baby face in this scenario because it's pulled off so well. And it's something that I made sure to, I, I wrote a note and underlined it that Bobby Heenan was excellent when Flair got called in here. It was a real tour de force. Maybe some of the best commentary we've had so far. Also remember that in 1994, Ric Flair lost a retirement match. Right. Yeah. No. The, <laughs> I, I, I feel like whenever matches involve Ric Flair after 1994 and all future podcasts, we should say he's already lost a retirement. <laughs> uh, we're not going to talk about uh, these guys much, but this led to Flair reforming the Four Horsemen and they and later adding Chris Benoit to fill out the group. So this is this is that time. Avoid, avoid, avoid. <laughs> All right. Sting defeated Flair on a subsequent Nitro. Used a Scorpion Deathlock. Uh, wouldn't let go until Lager, Luger rather persuaded him to do so. Uh, this next bit I included just for fun. Wrestling Observer, December 4, 1995. The show opened with one of the weirdest interviews probably in wrestling history. Hulk Hogan, Sting, and Savage came out. First, Hogan dumped his black wrestling attire in a burning garbage can. He then went off on a tangent about rag sheets, which is a term those in the business unfamiliar with how the real world operates refer to newsletters such as this. Uh, he goes on about the stuff that Hogan was complaining about. Uh, he says he then threw the rag sheet in the same burning garbage can saying, observe this, and said that it was a dinosaur and that the Internet has the real story. I suspect as his popularity and drawing power continues to drop, he'll get even more bitter since it appeared to be directed at me. I took it as a tremendous compliment. <laughs> this is probably Dave, like at like peak Dave. Like, like he still has the cattiness of the 80s where he would just outright say stuff that he would not get away with. But you also get a little bit of Twitter Dave with that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I forgot that Sting was in ring when Hogan burnt the uh, Observer. That's wild. <laughs> uh, Sting is with Hogan and Savage as as the year trickles out. Horsemen are attacking them. Uh, at Starcade, Sting defeated Kensuke Sasaki. Uh, they did a whole New Japan versus WCW show. Uh, and he won the World Cup of Wrestling for WCW in that match. Uh, but then he lost a triangle match uh, involving Flair and Luger. Uh, so Flair was the number one contender for the WCW championship, and he won that from Savage in the next match. And that closes out 95. So I'll hit the awards that Sting was mentioned in, uh, the Observer Awards. Best babyface, uh, Pero Aguayo was the winner that year, with Sting coming in fifth. Uh, most unimproved, Hogan won. Sting uh, was honorable mention. Most charismatic, Shawn Michaels won, with Sting coming in sixth. <laughs> this... Worst match of the year, Sting versus Tony Palmore from the Tokyo Dome. Tony Palmore from the Tokyo Dome. <laughs> Tony Palmore. <laughs> Every time I saw this, I kept thinking like, oh, I got to look this up. I got to find this match. Uh, but I, I never did. So, but it must be he, great. 
since it yeah so this is from january 4 uh a show main evented by Shinya Hashimoto and Kensuke Sasaki and oh big tag match Hase and Muto versus the Steiner brothers. Yeah, oh, no, yeah. Sting, Sting defeated Tony Palmore in four minutes and then later lost Antonio Inoki in ten. That sounds about right. God. Uh, Antonio Inoki uh, it, it, to get to this match defeating Gerard Gordeaux like a dirty kickboxer. Oh Aaron. right. This is like yeah. the this is like the shoot fighting, uh, shoot style thing. This okay, people hate this Sting versus Inoki match, but I thought it was excellent. I fucking loved it. I really, I think, well, I think so I guys found were crazy over. I think I found a TJ Hawk review about how bad it was, and yeah. I texted him. I was like, "No, this match rules. Actually, you're wrong <laughs> about this." Yeah, God, jeez, like. New Japan, just like the the fact that New Japan had a resurgence, is really a testament to them. <laughs> you know, it is. It, it, I, I I mean, I'm looking at a show, and the best match is probably the opener, Otani versus El Samurai. And I'm looking at like the rest <laughs> of the show, and I'm just like, <sighs> maybe Kota Bushi's right. Maybe Kota Bushi's right. <laughs> All right, we'll move into 96. Uh, Observer, March 11, 96. Kevin Nash, a.k.a. Diesel, officially gave notice he would be leaving the World Wrestling Federation to accept an offer from World Championship Wrestling and a phone call to Vince McMahon at 10.50 a.m. on March 5. Okay. While nothing is official... It's <laughs> 10.50 in the morning from Kevin Nash. Yep. Well, uh, how sober was he? He was. I'm and- assuming he was still awake from the night before. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, Dave's telling us something with that there. Like, <laughs> if you read Dave, you know what he's what he's inferring. Uh, while nothing is official, Scott Hall is expected to join WCW after his contract and legal commitments and or sitting out period ends with the WWF in late May. Sources in WCW claim a third major star will follow in their footsteps shortly. So I included a lot of the notes about who the third man is going to be. Just A, because I think it's funny. B, uh, Eric Bischoff, most famously, has uh, tried to create this mythology around uh, who Dave Meltzer said the third man was going to be. So I'm I'm going to stick up for Dave on this episode also. Okay. Okay. Okay, Aaron. Stick up for Dave. Stick up for Dave. Yeah. Right. I, I'm, I'm fair. I just, I say what's fair. Uh, at Steve Grissom's race over the weekend in Richmond, Virginia, the members of the pit crew all had their faces painted like Sting. This got considerable airtime on ESPN2 on Saturday afternoon. I mean, what is more perfect than that? What <laughs> Steve Grissom pit crew, all the little stingers out there. Warm That's right. Heart. Uh, May 6, 96 observer. Expect WCW to fairly quickly go to Hogan versus Scott Hall and Giant versus Kevin Nash feuds before the inevitable Giant Hogan. I just think it's fun to uh, monitor how this goes. But this is my favorite one. May 13, 1996. The Blood Runs Cold promos probably refer to the impending arrival of Kevin Nash and or Scott Hall. No, keep on talking. I'm just going to be providing back. If people don't know Blood Runs Cold, I'm not going to tell you yet because there are even other funny parts in the Observer about Blood Runs Cold that I had to include because I'm a madman. Observer May 2096, World Championship Wrestling announced on May 8th that it was expanding its Monday Nitro show to two hours 
from 8 p.m. Eastern time, effective on May 27. So we are now digging into the, uh, yeah, really, I mean, where it starts becoming the quote unquote war. Yeah, and it, it it's something that really this, what would you say? Uh, when did Nitro get that third hour? 97? Was it? 97? Uh, I'm sure it's in my notes later. <laughs> I yeah, don't remember. all right. But like you, you, you look at how, like we talked about what Raw was before Nitro. You look at this time period, and yet again, we're seeing the formulation of modern uh, North American television wrestling right here in a way that we don't really talk about how the paradigm changed a couple times under Vince McMahon's watch first buying all of the syndication. You talked about that in your 83 episode. Aaron, but then like moving all the way through to going like full like syndication buys to starting off some stuff on USA television. But Nitro going two hours is yet another step on reaching the, this kind of new era that would be fully in place by 97. I actually skipped an important part of my notes earlier, but uh, early in 96, Sting's appearance started to change. He grew longer, darker hair. Uh, often wore black tights, still sometimes wore the colorful ones. And he was teaming with Luger, uh, even though Luger was technically a heel. They won the tag titles. And there was this long story on a lot of the early Nitros about Luger being a heel and Sting was oblivious to it. And, you know, where did Sting stand on all this? Where did Luger stand on all this? Like that was a, a, a thread through all this early stuff. So keep that in mind. Um, continuing on in the May 2096 Observer, uh, Dave reports, Blood Runs Cold apparently has nothing to do with Kevin Nash and Scott Hall, but will be a team of three ninja heroes to be brought in, one of which is expected to be Brian Clark, a.k.a. Adam Bomb. There we go. We're getting closer. We're three Jim ninja heroes. We're, we gotta get Jim Vandenberg there, and then we get the whole act together. <laughs> During the tag title run that I talked about a second ago, Sting received a world title shot against the Giant at Slambury in May, but lost after accidental interference from Luger. So that story is continuing. Then on uh, June 3rd, 96 in The Observer, with the exception of the debut of Scott Hall, the first two-hour Nitro telecast by WCW on May 27 from Macon, Georgia, was almost a complete dud. So Nitro, well... It was the view of Dave and maybe the popular view that early Nitro was bad. Um, I don't agree with that, really. I think there's a lot of compelling stuff on the early Nitros. I'd rather enjoy them. Uh, but the important thing here is that Scott Hall showed up, which is obviously a big deal. Yeah, I, I think some of like the criticism towards those early Nitros is all of these things are happening while Scott Hall is coming aboard, while you have kind of, in a lot of ways, two visually distinct promotions being operated at the same time. You have the promotion as it was dating back to the JCP days and the Luger and Sting, that's very much a JCP-like storyline. And then you have the you have the fantastical stuff that's, that's happening with Blood Runs Cold. So you, you have a very discordant promotion right now that, really does need that top-of-the-line story that everything can kind of fold un unto. And, like, yeah, 
it's not the now the major thing because now we have NWO versus WCW, but we also have this going on under the auspices of that. I think that's kind of what hurt Nitro just was when you like your promotion wide storylines are Hulk, Hulk Hogan's story of the quarter, and then what and, and then the stuff you've been doing for the last few years under Schiller. It's gonna not gonna be well received. I I I totally get your defense there, but I think it kind of was just an encapsulation of a promotion that is changing before their eyes. For sure. It's just that not only do you have like what's going on with Hall and Nash, which is interesting, but you have stuff like Eddie Guerrero and Dean Malenko and, you know, the Benoit, those kind of guys like wrestling on the undercards of these shows. So there's plenty of stuff to enjoy. And I really, I think I'm maybe the only person who does, but I really enjoy the sting and Luger story. I think it's pretty compelling and fun. So I'm, I just like this era of Nitro. Uh, June 1796 Observer. I think they're going to keep the identity of the third member of the Nash and Hall team a secret until the July 7 show. There are things that lead me to believe it may not be Lex Luger after all, which is a mistake, Dave says. That always there to defend Lex Luger. Rumors are yeah. flying that it'll I, be I, Jeff Jarrett. I... I'm just taken aback by how much Dave capes for Lex Luger given everything. Like we talked about this yeah. last episode, but he really, really, it's almost like he like personally invested in Lex Luger's career with the way he put that in. Yeah. Oh, no, he always has a little idea to throw in about Lex Luger. Rumors are flying. It'll be Jeff Jarrett since Vince McMahon on the WWF hotline brought up Jarrett's name with Diesel and Ramon as expecting him to join WCW. Jarrett gave notice to Titan, is working out his notice in USWA, and he is WCW bound. However, his WWF contract doesn't expire until the fall, so it probably won't be him. Uh, we move on to July 196. Dave writes, as for the identity of the third party in the July 7 main event, it's really a secret. Lex Luger, which was the original plan, I can't see happening because it would be almost an exact duplicate duplicate of the Steve McMichael angle, and it's too soon to do it again. Yeah, you, you don't want to copy your Steve McMichael angle. You, you got to protect Mongo's heat. You, you, you really do. You really do. He's right All there. Right. Now, here is where this is what Bischoff always latches onto. Bischoff, Hall, and Nash were discussing names this past week with Mabel as the top candidate. So Eric Bischoff claims that Dave Meltzer reported that Mabel would be the third man in the NWO. That sentence, actually, it's not even a sentence. It's the first part of a sentence. Um, is the only mention I that I believe exists of Dave discussing Mabel as the third man in NWO. Ah, <sighs> I, I was about to say something like pithy, like castrate those marks, but uh, <laughs> observe this. How about observe that? this? Eighty three. What? <laughs> he says with Mabel as a top candidate, Crush being considered for a brief period and then dismissed. All agreed Bret Hart would be the best candidate, and WCW even floated the idea it would be Hart on its hotline over the weekend, but Hart has turned down every offer thrown his way. So it's not going to be Hart. It also could be another WCW wrestler turning on the company. Uh, we also see Sting and Luger lose the tag titles, uh, so you know that can, that can move on. And then in the Observer on July 8th, and remember, you know, the dates are 
off, right? Like this comes out on the 8th, even though the big show happened on the 7th, but he doesn't know yet. Uh, third member of the heel team for the pay-per-view won't be announced till the night of the show. Speculation is running rampant about who it is. I've been told that the deal was finalized last week for whomever it is. My feeling is that it's Hulk Hogan because a reader was working on the set of the movie Hogan is doing with Roddy Piper and said that Hogan told Piper he was asked to be the third guy that he was probably going to do it. <laughs> Great way for that for that news to come out. Oh, it's so sick. <laughs> yeah, so, oh, sorry. Got a uh, sa- uh, an alarm on my phone. Okay, so I, if you actually read The Observer... Uh, wait, what is what did Dave used to say? Reading would be helpful. Oh, reading would be kind. Reading would be kind. Yeah, so July 15, 96 Observer. It, it, but if you finally, if you actually read it, you see that Hogan was the guy that he uh, predicted right before the show. Uh, after a 15-year babyface run that started by accident, Hulk Hogan turned heel amidst incredible heat in an angle that we remembered for years as the climax of WCW's Bash at the Beach pay-per-view on July 7 in Daytona Beach. So, yeah, Hogan is the third man. Uh, on The Outsiders, he announces the NWO. Uh, Dave predicts some other funny people to join the NWO, which uh, mostly don't. Uh, the thing, I, I guess, that's most interesting as it relates to Sting is he writes, there was legit fear basically up until the last day that Hogan would change his mind at the last minute, as he's done in the past when it comes to major angles that would leave him laying or doing jobs that would elevate others to a parody position. A plan B contingency idea was that Sting would do a heel turn and join the Outsiders, largely due to the belief that too many people had speculated about Luger turning or Savage turning, but nobody had speculated on Sting turning, and the company wanted a shocking finish to the show. Uh Basically, he reports that Sting had agreed to go along with it if they had to, uh, but they decided, or, you know, Hogan went along with it, so uh, they didn't have to go to plan B. It's it's something, though, that I'm interested to see, like, obviously Hogan was so key to the NWO being NWO and the timing of that heel turn. Like, years overdue, the catharsis, I mean, not dissimilar, but on a completely different level of magnitude of when Roman Reigns turned heel. Like this was, it was something that why well, I think one of the reasons why NWO was so well received and seen so as earth shattering, it was because it was Hogan. But I do wonder Sting doing his real, his only real heel turn while in WCW with like those three. It, there's no way that it could have scraped like the global consciousness that NWO actually really did i mean was kylie jenner wearing the wolfpack t-shirt at coachella a couple of years ago kind of like started like oh wait people are wearing wrestling t-shirts again like it had that level of permeation but i wonder if it's like sting at least for the the still there and still representative uh old timers jim crockett uh wcw old timers like if it was sting turning his back versus hogan if that would have been more endearing to them because because i know that there's like a group of fans that turned off wcw after this show because of this and never went back so i wonder if how that might have changed if it was staying if plan b actually did come through my sense is that well it goes back to what we talked about last episode 
it wouldn't have worked largely because Sting was never the politician that Hogan was. It, in part, it took Hogan's politics of making this be the only thing that basically happened on Nitro uh, most weeks, you know, just being the primary focus. You want to talk about something being pushed. The fucking NWO angle was pushed. And uh, Sting wouldn't have guaranteed that. If there was any dip, you can easily imagine them abandoning it and just moving on to the next thing. But do you think they would have abandoned it with the amount of money invested in it, though? With Hogan and... Uh, not Hogan, with Nash and Hall? Like, they were... Like, we talked about the pay scale changing drastically. These are guys that went from, like, Sting being, like, the, the top paid guy. Like, these guys are probably getting paid maybe an extra digit more than Sting at this point for hopping over. Like, do you think that, that maybe the monetary investment would have stopped them from flipping at the first at like the first opportunity things usually would have gone in with Sting's bad politics. Well, it's, I mean, you're, that's not, uh, that's not off base, especially because Hall and Nash were also great politicians, especially Hall. I mean, I'm sorry, especially Nash. So yeah, maybe, uh, I just, I don't think it would have had the same impact. Obviously we'll never know, but basically where they went from here was, uh, the NWO brought out, uh, NWO Sting, who was Jeff Farmer. And they kept playing up this idea that Sting had joined the NWO. And now we have Sting and Luger kind of at odds because Luger isn't sure whether he can trust Sting. Like they've turned around, you know, this whole story. And this all leads to Sting coming out on uh, Nitro. Uh, No music, no pyro, no nothing. He comes out and he cuts a promo where he's like, what the fuck? All my friends are doubting me. Uh, even Lex Luger, who's, you know, been like my closest friend. I've done everything for him. I've carried the WCW banner for years and now I'm being doubted. Uh, so he says, from now on, I consider myself a free agent. Says he would visit from time to time, threw the microphone down and left the ring and uh, actually left to go to Japan. Just like, like you can stick it. I uh, that's a line. That's a line from this promo that's ingrained in my brain. Is like if you're on with it and you could stick it, just the way he kind of said it there, and you know, kind of started the most unique 24 month period in a wrestler's career, at least in the modern era, with him throwing down a microphone and going to Japan. Yeah, I went to Japan for his his last ever uh, Japanese tour. Um. It's very sad because there was some cool stuff that Sting did in Japan. Observer, September 23, 1996. Real story. A woman called the WCW offices last week complaining because her her five-year-old had spray-painted NWO on her one-year-old. Sick. (laughs) That kid's black block. Yeah. (laughs) Hell yeah. Observer, October 7, 96. Sting's storyline is actually to explain his absence as he's doing a movie called Liar Liar starring Jim Carrey. I can think of a lot of wrestling personalities who should be stars in a movie with that name. Oh, Dave. (laughs) Oh, Dave. (laughs) So on the October 21, 96 edition of Nitro, Sting comes back. He's got the trench coat on, the white face paint, the black on the face paint, the crow face paint. We just don't know. You know, we're not calling it that yet. He attacked NWO Sting. 
Uh, NWO offered him to join the NWO to get back at the WCW for betraying him. Uh, he said, you know, I may or may not be in your price range. And he said, the only thing that's for sure about Sting is that nothing's for sure. What a promo. <laughs> what a promo. I, I, I feel like we don't give him respect for just being the same level promo that he was in 1985. Mucho Lincoln. respecto, Sting. Mucho respecto. <laughs> <laughs> um. Observer, October 2896, Dave continues on his anti-Sting tirade. TNT just started airing a new commercial with Sting as the star of the show, which pretty much says he'll end up as the WCW focal top babyface. After all these years of trying to push him in that position with it never working, you'd think it might be time to give someone else a shot. Buddy, what's Lex Luger doing right now? <laughs> like, what is Lex doing right there? At that point, he's doing a weird storyline of Miss Elizabeth. Like, you really pick winners, Dave. Not the yep. guy that's like the enduring icon of a company and is still massively over because Sting is the icon. He, You shouldn't promote him. You shouldn't. That's insane. Uh, November 11, 96, Observer, Dave writes, One of the reasons they did this angle with Sting is that in his contract, it called for a specified maximum amount of dates in the year, and WCW only had a few dates left. And they needed him for major house shows, so they had to get him off much of the television and minor house shows. This is like a thing that happens several times with Sting, where they booked him too much, so then they have to let him go home for a while. Yeah, l l l so guys, welcome to later WCW. You've heard the stories about Lenny Poffo getting sent a plane ticket every week. It, You know, it, it's something that they needed like one person whose job it was just to like run a computer program saying you have X amount of appearances. Like like they have this in EWR and telling you how many appearances you have left of someone on their current contract. How could they not have someone with whatever like 1996 version of PowerPoint or Excel and they're going like, hey, Dusty, uh, uh, hey, Eric, uh, you might want to tone down our Sting usage. Or and it wasn't just Sting. Like Sting is just like the most well-known example. This happened to a lot of people because they guaranteed money on a specified amount of dates. And after they crossed that, you didn't have to work. Like like they paid you your money. So just have like one person in the office keeping track of this. Like is that too hard to ask for, Aaron? I don't think so. You got if. A guy has a hundred dates. You just every time he appears, you you write a one, <laughs> and when it adds up to a hundred, it's yeah, over. Yeah, yeah. I, as the whiteboard guy, I should be saying they should have a <laughs> one room that just has everyone's name, and you just like are doing the little marks. You're doing yeah. the tally marks there, and like have a line that's like, oh no, if we go past this amount, we can't we can't use uh, Brian Knobs anymore for the year. Exactly. No All wonder right. this company completely imploded, man. Yeah. All right. Here's kind of it's not really a uh, an off or a tangent, but around this time, Dave first floated the idea of the Observer Hall of Fame. But his idea at the beginning was to uh, just list 126 wrestlers, promoters, managers, or announcers uh, that. Basically, his thought was you couldn't even question these people being in a wrestling hall of fame. So he does that. Uh, and then he says, uh, with all the dozens of letters we received about various people who were neglected, nearly all from the 50s through 70s, we didn't receive even one letter about Sting. 
who is a better worker than some on the list and during his day was a bigger star than many, perhaps most, who made the list. Kids who are growing up now and become interested in wrestling history in 20 years would put guys like Sting and Undertaker on a list without question, and maybe even Lex Luger. (laughs) But those of us watching then, or watching them now, probably dismiss them because they are current and because we're all aware of their shortcomings and know they aren't Ric Flair or Bret Hart. Fact is, they made more money than all but a handful of the guys on the list. <sighs> Boy, how do I want to pack that, Aaron? You, you, <laughs> you, you just like leave like a nice Christmas dinner in front of me to completely devour up there. So first off, Dave basically did have a founder's class that he just named. And everyone was like, oh, yeah, no, they're Hall of Famers. But like a lot of them were it's like, like the baseball Hall of Fame. Right, yeah, but a lot of them are people that, like, Gorgeous George has to be in a wrestling hall of fame. You can't tell a story for wrestling. So there was a lot of that there. And then talking about, God, Dave is almost, like, like perverting, like, my own personal ethos with, like, the giving people their flowers in real time, but instead of just pointing out their flaws instead. Like, that's what he, that's how I interpret what he says. Like, hey, you you know the idea that we should live in the moment and, you know, recognize greatness when we see it. Don't think after the fact. Nah, we look at it in the moment and we point out, hey, that sucks compared to this, but they make more money than anyone else ever did. Like, this is like a 30-year concentrated hit on Sting. It is. It's like, motherfucker, you're the one who's focused on what you think are Sting's shortcomings, even though you have to acknowledge he's one of the most successful guys in the history of the business. Yeah, and the, the and, and without even getting the money, he was the person that propped up WCW in a time period with what where you had complete needle dicks in the head office and can keep their hands off the toys. You know, I mean, the, the that's that's arguably more impressive than a lot of things that, that on that initial list because you know did William Muldoon have to deal with Pizza Hut guy wanting to change pro wrestling deal with <laughs> Bill Watts wanting to like say you get in a bar fight you lose your fire you deal with that kind of crazy no because they're worried about like the theory at that point like they were Singh was operating on a different level I'm gonna I'm gonna take away you know usually uh as you know you're not allowed to discuss the Observer Hall of Fame uh, clearly that doesn't apply when we're, when we're discussing this is sting. Uh, so I'll ask you this question. I assume like sting is someone you easily believe should be in the hall of fame, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no. And, and, and this isn't even me being a big hall person in the wrestling observer standpoint. Uh, no, sting's hall of famer, like of his own merits. What about Luger? No, not, not even close. Never drew no influence. Bad uh, resume. What about Undertaker? Undertaker's a yes, and I hate that he's a yes. But he is a yes because, like, you can't tell the story of pro wrestling without mentioning the Undertaker. The Undertaker, like, talking business-wise, headlined or was a part of the draw of some of the highest-grossing shows of all time. The Undertaker, like, I mean, longevity becomes a positive factor. I, I, I think we talk about the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame, and for a guy of his size, that kind of longevity, even though it was greatly reduced, but I think if you average out his career, then it, he's, he was overused, you know, just because how much, like, I mean, Undertaker didn't take off a lot, like, in his early career, working that schedule, so I think you would have to, 
even though I would stick my nose up, like you kind of have to have Undertaker in there, right? I, I think he has a reasonable influence case too. Yeah, like that's the thing. Like you have the three categories. If I were to grab the Gordy test right now, if we applied it to Sting, Undertaker, and Lex Luger, we we come to the same conclusions. I would say. No, I'm sorry, the Murdoch test. Why well, call it the Gordy test? It's fine. I mean, it should be the Terry Gordy test. Terry Gordy's much better wrestler than Dick. <laughs> that's true. But yeah, um, I mean, I think Sting is a much better worker than Undertaker. Different styles, I would yeah. argue. Much more different styles. <sighs> the The problem is, is that Undertaker, in a lot of ways, like when you talk about influence, he became the blueprint for what we consider uh, giant wrestlers now. You can't say, and a lot of that was with the way he wrestled and the way he emoted and the way that works in the ring. You can't say Sting was the best pure baby face in wrestling history in the same way. That's true. That's a fair point. But do I enjoy Sting's matches more? Hell yeah, brother. Listen to the crowd. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right. Uh, November 1896, Dave writes, The Sting angle is going to continue for a while because on a worldwide show taped for late December, he was in the same Marcel Marceau gimmick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did, you, did you keep track of the first time that he described it as the crow oh yeah okay thank you this is gonna be a lot of a lot of fun seeing when dave realized that this was brandon <laughs> lee the crow uh yeah so as i'm sure people know sting was in the rafters with a baseball bat for a long time um they did he was doing like loyalty tests he would confront wrestlers try to get them to come after him you know they wouldn't uh he would get the bat back leave the ring blah blah, blah. you know but this was like he's testing the loyalty of the people of wcw yeah the whole story always... is is he with wcw or nwo at this time right yeah it's like he he declared himself a free agent why is he doing loyalty tests with people like it's it's like this and, and the way that he would do the over exaggerated arms outstretched back to the person the baseball bat and you have some of the ones just like stare at the bat and think about it and it was effective for saying i don't know how effective it was for the people taking the loyalty test but i feel like it did a good enough job of kind of having him as this fourth column person that can't really be understood at this point uh that brings us to the end of 96 we'll hit some of the awards best baby face sean michaels wins with sting being an honorable mention feud of the year wcw versus nwo wins i figured i'd include that since you know sting was uh, a big part of that worst feud of the year wcw versus nwo came in second <laughs> with big bubba versus john tenta taking home the the gold Oh, God, I forgot about Big Bubba. This was like after, didn't it the start as him as the Guardian Angel, then becoming Big Bubba partway through? Guardian Angel was was part of this, yes. Yeah. Yeah, again, WCW. Like, a promotion doing a lot of things. No wonder. So as we go into 97, Randy Savage is aligning himself with Sting as a free agent. Uh, even though Eric Bischoff, who's now aligned with the NWO, has declared that uh, Randy Savage has to join the NWO or he won't be allowed back in WCW. 
Observer, February 397, NWO sold out, which we're not going to talk about that much, unfortunately, but there are two funny notes from the Observer. The less said about the NWO beauty pageant and the members of the the members of the washed up band Jackal, the better. <laughs> I forgot that Jackal. <laughs> I forgot that man. Jeez. Yes. Miss NWO finally ended with the sight of Bischoff French kissing an overweight mid fifties woman to no cheers, even fewer laughs, and a lot of gagging around the country. By this time, the show was about as much fun to watch as three hours of somebody masturbating. In fact. I'm not sure that isn't what we were watching. God, I, Dave. <laughs> yeah. Ugh, okay, gosh. Dave, first of all, uh, sex work is work. Sex work uh, is work, and, and there's people who pay a lot of money to watch people master. Exactly. So get off your fucking high horse, David. Philistine. Yes. Uh, Observer, February, uh, listen to this. February 7, 1997. Expect Sting back in the ring later than sooner. Yep. Observer February 24, 97. Sting is wanting back in the ring, but the plans as they were is that it's still a long way from happening. So keep in mind, Sting is not doing matches, promos, anything at this point. And he hasn't for a long time. Yeah, so Sting's last promo was at this point, already half a year before. Yes. Observer, 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 March 397. There were numerous fans with Sting face paint, more than I've ever seen at a WCW show. The Sting face paint, still not calling it the crow, still not doing yeah. it. But he's also like still refusing to acknowledge how over Sting is. <sighs> All right, so we got... Sting and Randy Savage um, in the rafters. Savage turns on Sting, joins NWO. Sting starts accompanying the NWO, so you think he's joined. But at WCW Uncensored, and if you don't know about this, I'm about to tell you something very funny. NWO were celebrating a victory in the main event Battle Royal uh, with their newest recruit, Chicago Bulls NBA star Dennis Rodman and Sting repelled from the roof of the arena on a vertical zip line uh, and attacked everyone, revealing his allegiance to WCW. Yeah. Oh, gosh. It's really hard to impart to uh, to people who came into wrestling later, like how big wrestling was at this point that. Like, yes, that's a gag, Dennis Rodman, and then Carl Malone, and others, Kevin Green. But, like, not weird at the time that, that like, like Aaron, we're 11. We're sitting at home. Uh, are you surprised that Dennis Rodman, one of the biggest NBA stars in the world, has just shown up on pay-per-view at this point? At the time, no. I mean... I just fucking loved it. I was a huge Dennis Rodman mark, and I was like, this is the coolest shit that's ever happened in my entire life. Because when you're 11 years old, Dennis Rodman is objectively the coolest person in the world. So, of course, he's a pro wrestling. Frankly, to this day, other than sex with people who shall remain unnamed, this is one <laughs> of the coolest parts of my life. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, no, like... Yeah, uh, like him repelling and like Dennis Rodman and 
I'm just thinking about Dennis Rodman doing this and and then saying Michael Jordan really pissed off. And, and and that's the great thing about doing this now with all the hindsight and the world airing because we wouldn't know how much Dennis Rodman pissed off Michael Jordan on a regular basis. And this had to have gotten <laughs> furious, right? Just Oh, yeah. Just makes me love Rodman even more. Oh, frankly. absolutely. So he doesn't care about practice. He's going to go drink with Carmen Electra and then show up at this WCW pay-per-view. Fuck that. Yeah, it rocks. Uh, March 24, 97 Observer. Dave's talking about this angle. Uh, he says uh, the show was saved by the angle that ended the show. Uh, Sting got a thunderous pop, as he should have, since they spent six months building up to that moment as he soaked it in while the credits ran. Wait, you're telling me that if you actually push a Sting story and then deliver the thing that you're supposed to deliver at the end of it, that the crowd will respond to it? Yeah, the the person that the crowd has pretty much been waiting on bated breath for his reaction for what uh, what would you say at this point? Nineteen ninety seven. We're, we're approaching almost a full decade at this point that they would erupt when he finally gets his hands on these people after a year after months of anticipation and wondering what's up. He's declared war, defending the thing he's always defended. Like, of course they're going to react. Yeah, absolutely. Um, May 5, 97 Observer, merchandise continues to do phenomenal business. The Sting t-shirt is the top seller everywhere, followed by NWO and the new Page t-shirts, uh, Diamond Dallas Page. In most cities right now, the split is about 69-31 WCW over NWO when it comes to merchandise, and you're about to find out that that's almost all because of Sting. Okay, so... We're still doing the sting repelling from the rafters, but now he's attacking the NWO. Um, JJ Dillon tries to get sting to return to wrestling by offering him contracts to fight people in the NWO sting tears up the contracts. Um, and then Dylan finally asks him, who do you want? Sting went out to ringside, picked up a fan sign and pointed out the name on it. Hulk Hogan. Just cool. Like, it's just like, because really like no one was like doing stuff with signs or anything like that. Like, and people who hate signs now. Yeah. But in 97, like single, like I want this guy picking up a fan sign. That's babyface magic right there. Yeah. He hasn't spoken in months and months. And this is what he does. It's fucking, fucking great. How, like, this is the thing, like, now that we're past the, uh, now that we're in our sixth hour of the series, Aaron, (laughs) here's the thing. How, with, of course, we're saying this now with 24 years of hindsight, 25 years, how can someone be so inherently biased about someone that their reporting is so uneven and drips of it that like he has no sense for obvious reasons or concept of that he's being double dealing this entire time. Like you're reading stuff out of almost like consecutive weeks. That is some of the most bipolar reporting about (laughs) someone. 
and, and I'm someone that that like I when I get insomnia, I will read through old observers. Like like that's something that I'll do. We both enjoy reading this kind of stuff, studying this kind of stuff. That's why we're we're continuing to pursue this. But have you encountered someone that Dave Meltzer has had more of a haphazard agenda against over his career of writing than Stank? It's no, I mean it's well, it's hard for me to say. I've really focused on Sting lately, so you know I'm pretty in the in the Sting weeds, as it were. But yeah, it's like sometimes he'll go on about Sting in a positive way. It really depends who else is involved. Like it, there's always you know an angle, there's always uh, an agenda. Usually, it's if he's talking positively about Sting, it's to put over Flair in some way, uh, right? This, I think, is often to uh, downgrade Hogan, you know, but I'm not quite sure. But usually when he's saying something nice about Sting, it's because it is helping him put over someone else that he liked. And it's interesting you bring up Hogan because Hogan is someone that Dave, I would say, has, has overall a mixed opinion of. And that he recognizes his accomplishments, in particular Hulkamania, but then he will be completely honest in his dealings with him. We don't get that with Sting. We've never gotten that with Sting. Whereas with like you've seen people with mixed legacy, he's able to handle, I would say, in the appropriate context. But he's never able to do so. With- yeah, I th- I think Sting is just too tied up in flair for him. I mean, Ricky doesn't get this from Sting. Like, Ricky Steamboat, arguably as tied up with uh, Ric Flair as one can be. Dave's nothing but complimentary to Ricky Steamboat. Well, but people, but I think generally people view Steamboat as a good worker, right? Um, I, I, it's just the whiplash, I guess, from, you know, what Flair was doing to Sting's work, which... Look, was Sting a Ric Flair level worker? No, not one fucking day in his life. Uh, but what are we talking about here? Like, what is yeah? What is the purpose of this business? You know, like r- r- right, yeah. Because when like you talk about Sting's style, like Sting's wrestling style would have been maybe not one to one the same style that Roy Roy Shire had in San Francisco, which would have been the wrestling of his upbringing, but not dissimilar from the style of the fifties and the sixties, except I would argue that like Sting is performing that style, like miles better than like Billy Graham was. So it, 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 it's just one of those things that it's like a unique, just cross for him to bear is, is Sting in it. And at this point I've just kind of exploded about it. Yeah, I know. It's like, we've talked, We've, that's mostly what we talked about, but it's it's weird because Sting. It's not like Sting won the title and started doing sixty minute matches. You know, trying to be like Flair. You know, he he did his style of match. Um, you know, they kept him short, and it was good. So I don't know. I mean, I get like you don't have to think someone is good or bad based on business reasons, right? Like if you're not, if you're just a wrestling fan, you don't have to care about that. Of course it, I have nothing wrong with Dave Meltzer saying he doesn't like Sting as a worker. That's fine. It's up to him, whatever he subjectively likes about work. Uh, but if the crowd goes crazy for you, buys your shit, 
whatever. It's hard to argue against, uh, other than saying like, subjectively, I don't like this guy. For example, like FTR right now, MJF, I don't like them. <laughs> you know, I don't enjoy what they do, but the crowds go crazy for it. So, you know, who's to say? All right. November 2497 Observer, to the surprise of virtually nobody, WCW broke its all-time gate record once again on the first day tickets uh, went on sale for the Hulk Hogan versus Sting WCW title match headlining Starcade 97. So, you know, it's doing big business. Uh, December 197, a merchandise breakdown uh, from a show at or, uh, the pay-per-view at Auburn Hills. Top selling t-shirts were Sting. 898, NWO, 774, Page, 502, uh, dwindles from there. The next hottest item was the Kimberly poster, which sold 130 items. <laughs> Who is your favorite Nitro Girl, Aaron? I feel like that y- y- you have said that hmm. so that we have to talk about the Nitro Girls. Who is your favorite? I mean, I was a big uh, Kimberly fan. There's no doubt about that. I'm trying, I mean, I'm trying to find a, a labeled picture so I can. <laughs> it, it, because they changed their names, the names. They, they brought them in to like do character stuff too. So. Yeah. That, see, that's hard for me to say. Let me, let me study that. And then I'll do a, uh, <laughs> this is the nitro girls. Gotta see what fire and spice are up to, man. Oh man. Gosh, nobody's done like a fucking labeled picture of the, the nitro girls so i can I expect you to know in your heart aaron like i'm actually a little bit surprised that you can't just immediately especially like your love of girl groups i know and nitro girls were the original girl group so yeah i mean even before the ronettes we had the nitro girl. <laughs> that's right all right I'll, i'm yeah. sorry I'll, I'll do some more research on uh the nitro girls <laughs> I, appreciate I just found an instagram account called nitro girls for life I have Love to imagine it. that they're like you, you remember the Kevin Nash like defending his fan club and all of that because it was a lot of middle aged women. It's like Kevin Nash eating a dinner with uh Oh um, yeah, that rule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm wondering if there's like a version of that for like the uh the Nitro girls that they, they there are people who are just sincere fans and they do they they want to get together to see how Camperly's fire and spice paisley okay i just remember four nitro girls and i i didn't really watch those w uh okay i'm man i'm seeing the one who was my favorite now but i can't find out what her name is oh and there was whisper uh the the one that quit and ran off and uh, and got married to Shawn michael oh it was it was spice it was spice spice is a good one I was a big Spice fan. No, no big shock there. Since I also she was, a big Spice she was the Girls spunky fan. One. She was the spunky one. Yeah, yeah. But I also, you know, it's long, long time thing of mine. I also, you know, liked the redhead a lot. So there you go. What can I say? Those are those are my favorites. Okay, uh, right. Sting wrestled Hogan for the championship at Starcade, and. I'll mo- I really don't even want to read it, uh, but 
Oh, you have but, to talk about how WCW shot themselves in the dick, Aaron. Well, I but there's a whole thing here where Dave is like the second Sting walked out, uh, it it all fell apart. Everything was bad suddenly. Sting was nothing once he made his ring entrance. But he does say, for nearly 16 months, Sting, one of the most popular wrestlers in the country over the past decade, was kept on the shelf with a new stoic brooding character taken from the Crow movie. Almost 13 months later, and he identifies it. January 5, 1998. So, anyway. I just can't do it anymore, so I'm not going to do all the... Meltzer shitting on Sting here, but they absolutely fucked the finish of this match. One of the great mysteries, I think, in pro wrestling. Uh, what happened here? Uh, the story was scheduled to be that since Hogan was doing the job, he would dominate on offense. Since Nick Patrick was going to turn heel as a ref, uh, he had to play it straight the entire match. After a lackluster match, which even saw boring chance two minutes in, Hogan delivered his foot to the face and leg drop finish. At this point, the plan was for Patrick to deliver a fast count and have Sting still kick out before three, but Patrick would rule it as a pin leading to Bret Hart avenging the wrong done to him at Survivor Series and getting the match restarted. A funny thing happened. Patrick didn't count fast. Now, this is funny what Dave writes. You can mistime a ref bump. You can blow a move. But how do you blow a fast count? The only reasonable answer to this is Hogan changed the spot in the ring and Patrick didn't want to cross Hogan. So that's funny. But anyway, Hart does... uh... Which, to be fair... Hogan probably did try to to cross Sting in the ring there. Like, oh yeah, some. I mean, Hogan was responsible for this. I'm confident, but right. But it ended up making it look like, um, it ended up making it look like Hogan won the match. Just the way they did it, even though you know, basically, it was like Sting was winning as on the screw job. Uh, So it was fucked. And then the next night on Nitro, Hogan protests the decision. So Hogan is like the fucking baby face in the story. Now, keep in mind, Dave Meltzer is going to tell you that this Sting title reign flopped. And that it was Sting's fault. Okay. Hogan protests the decision, says that Patrick's decision should have been considered final. I uh, got a rematch. This is great. The match ran over Nitro's allotted time, and the finish was aired later in the week on the inaugural episode of Thunder. <laughs> they did a fuck finish again. J.J. Dillon vacated the world title. Sting had to surrender it. Sting responded with his first words on Mike since October 96 when he told Dillon, you've got no guts. And then he turned to Hogan and he said, and you, you're a dead man. Just cool as hell. Like, even with, like, all this bullshit sting, just going and dropping the bombs there. It's great. And, yeah, so all this happened. How can someone have a strong tile run coming after this? Well, you have to rehab the the run, right? Like, on the go. You have to be like, all right, this guy's got to look strong, have good matches, whatever it is, to get the crowd back behind them because yeah no like you 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 booked them into oblivion and winning this match in this way or they do they continue to book them into oblivion so there there was no chance for the style run to start off strong because they weren't going to ever rehabilitate it so there's no chance to even 
even make good on a bad start and make the run go like, hey, you know, they really the title switch was bad, but everything since then it was great. You know, there wasn't wasn't even that opportunity. Uh, Dave also wrote one of the reasons Sting Hogan didn't get a lot of heat at Starcade was because there was a murmur going around the building that it wasn't the real Sting in the ring selling for Hogan. And most of the fans were expecting a real Sting to come from the ceiling for the finish. God, wrestling fans are so cool. I know. Uh, that ends 97. So let's look at the awards. Most charismatic Steve Austin wins. Sting came in fourth. Best gimmick, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Sting coming in seventh. Worst gimmick, New Gold Dust. And Sting coming in eighth. So as we go into 98, uh, the story here is basically the fracturing of the NWO. So Sting recaptures uh, the the WCW championship. Um, and he... Basically, we get NWO Wolfpack. Sting's part of that. He's wearing the red and black. And the other side is NWO Hollywood, uh, the black and white NWO. And so they're at odds. Um, but then we get Observer, March 16, 98. The behind the scenes turmoil exploded over the past week between the Hulk Hogan, Eric Bischoff power base and the Kevin Nash, Scott Hall group that has clearly lost power as it has been phased down during the same period the company is doing record business. The original plan was to break up the Wolfpack from the NWO in early 98, which would put Hall and Nash in the top program working against Hogan and Savage. But Hogan nicks the plan, basically not letting them up to his level, saying it wasn't the time to do an internal NWO feud, and immediately after started the feud, but instead to bring Savage back up to the top level and leave everyone else clearly in secondary issues. Uh, But with Hall and Nash, not to mention Flair, Hart, and Luger as well, all being off Thunder and the show being totally based around Hogan and Randy Savage. Uh, the... Damn, Dave, do you write like this, bitch? Uh, the show drew a record rating. This solidified Hogan's perception as the guy who drives the ratings and buy rates, and the company will continue to be built around. So remember, Sting's the champion. He's got a, a challenge coming up with Scott Hall. Hall finally got to do his first interview for his title match with Sting, on 3.15, just six days before the show. But Hogan, after giving the strap to Sting in San Francisco the next night on television, clearly positioned the title and Sting as a second-level issue. Yeah, I know this is Sting, but Hogan... <sighs> dude knew how to, knew how to play, it, play his hand. He completely... He, he got away with it. Hogan got away with it here. Because he, he did immediately mitigate Sting in his title run. Like, first with the way he dropped the title, and then here now. And, like, Hogan had an agreement about this time that Hogan was pulling this right before NBA playoffs, and Hogan would always disappear at this time. Like, yeah, Sting got booked like the like the back office uh, politician newbie that he was because you had someone that, like, Aaron, like, I I don't think I'm being hyperbolic. Like, you lay out Hulk Hogan's hand. I don't think there's a way you could play it better. Oh, no. Not at all. But it fucks Sting, and, you know... Oh, absolutely so. Like, like he's the, the, the big loser out of this masterstroke. And, and that's all I'm saying. Like, I know there's some people who 
probably don't want to hear us go on about uh, Dave Meltzer, but that's all I'm saying is that if you want to be fair about this title run, you have to look at what Hogan did, you know, to completely undermine it. I mean, well, I've teased this on the last episode. We're going to talk about the way you actually get a, a new champion over later in this episode. Uh, another thing about the the early uh, Observer Hall of Fame. Uh, so the next year, he's talking about Dave's talking about Sting. <sighs> no, I can't do it. I can't do it. Never mind. Not gonna not gonna read that part. I've got to stop talking about Dave Meltzer's uh, agenda against Sting. Okay. May 25, 1998. This is the Nitro before Slamboree. Uh, the Sting versus Randy Savage main event went all of two minutes and 19 seconds with no heat before Hart attacked Savage, so it ended with no decision. Nash ran in and attacked Sting until Giant made the save. Giant saved Sting and told him he made a career decision to join the NWO and wanted to team with Sting on the pay-per-view because they'd win the belts, and then Sting would have to make a decision to keep the belts or not. So now we got Giant trying to get back in Sting's good graces. Uh, so then at Slamboree, Sting and the Giant, a.k.a. Paul White, beat Kevin Nash and Scott Hall, won the WCW tag titles. This is important because we're coming up on a batch that's related. Uh, the Nitro after that show, it ended with uh, NWO Hollywood coming out, including Dusty Rhodes. Hart came out with the group, never talked, kind of hung by himself. They introduced Hall. Hogan and Bischoff did all the talking, clearly hogging the spotlight and making Hall and Hart look like second-tier stars. Giant then told Sting to come out and make his decision. Sting came out, spat at Giant, and as he left, Giant destroyed Sting until Nash made the save, holding a bat as the show went off the air. So Sting and Giant split, and the team was forced to vacate the titles they just won 18 days later. Oh, WCW. Like... And, 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 like, the thing is, is at this time, like, you would get your, the hour one that was, like, cruiserweights and, like, the technicians and stuff like this. The, this was the stuff that was all over the rest of it. Like, w, NWO became, like, a monster of their own creation, like, such a regard that they tried to spin away NWO with the sold-out stuff. Like, we need to have NWO do its own thing. And instead, like, they had all this TV to fill in, you know, like, the, the best that they could do with the uh, limitation and the cards that they have dealt to themselves was NWO internecine drama and arguing about like, oh, he's wearing the white t-shirt. That must mean he's Hollywood. Oh, he's wearing the red t-shirt. Like, how could this be like construed as good television? I mean, I thought it was great television when I was 12, for sure. But like when you're 12, you're like you, you, the, like comprehending this color is bad, this color is good. Like that's like right in line here. But like looking at it now, though, oh, yeah. Aaron. Oh yeah. Uh, all right, I'll do one more. Observer, June one ninety eight, talking about uh, the possible uh, choices for most overrated. Sting sells merchandise, but has he flopped or what this year? Fuck you. <sighs> Just unnecessary just did, did like sting sleep with dave Meltzer's sister <laughs> i don't know uh observer june 8 98 sting came to the ring wearing a black and white t-shirt then as hogan smiled sting clothesline hogan ripped off the shirt to reveal a red and black shirt and he smiled for the first time in years as the show went off the air 
Uh, and this leads us into the second match of this episode, 90 minutes in to it. Uh, and that is Sting versus the Giant on June 14th, 1998 at the Great American Bash. I'm fascinated, Mike, to hear what you thought about this. Well, when I get the match lists, I get name and date. No context whatsoever. So <laughs> watching this match, Aaron, first... <laughs> I didn't have like the nice like 10 minutes of explaining the WCW tag team title and what was going on there. So I was very confused, Aaron, because what would someone who would not have had the last 10 minutes reasonable conclusion be when they heard when they see this match is announced and they first started? Why the fuck is the singles match for the WCW tag team titles? Because it's WCW in 1998. Right. Yeah. And 12 year old Aaron loved this. Uh, yeah. Also. So- Giant walks to the ring smoking a cigarette. <laughs> Just cool as hell, burning a heater on the way out there. Always respect that they made him smoking be uh, like one of his primary character devices is that the giant smokes cigarettes and that's bad because it stunts your growth. They were doing this in 1998, folks. 1998. <laughs> uh, the match itself, like, had such like a cool start and the way that they kind of very believingly, like, if you like look at this match in the progression of Sting's career now, we're 13 years in, and this is a match that Sting could not come close to having up to maybe four or five years before that. I mean, whenever there were monsters before, it always looked very strained and forced with Sting, but this match wasn't that. This match really was like, oh, this is Sting's a guy who usually doesn't have problems with like bigger guys, but the Giants, the Giant. He has him in a sick bear hug. And it's just, <laughs> it just was a really, like, actually a really smartly worth match. And when you look at it uh, with, like, the uh, view of just the scope of just Sting's career, it's a, uh, I, I, I view this match as, like, a remarkable accomplishment. And someone who's not a great entering wrestler getting this match of Giant, who we're talking someone 18 months of wrestling at this point, if that that he was able to do that. So I, I, I'm intrigued to know why you suggested this match in this time period. I haven't an idea and what I got out of it, but I'm wondering if it lines up with what you, why you chose this match. So the reason I chose it is I think a lot of the matches you can pick out where a sting match isn't as good. You know, as I've talked about at length throughout this series, Stink doesn't have the best offense in the world. Like, he's not as good at at putting it together. But a lot of times, he's in there with guys who aren't compelling on offense, who don't have great offense. Uh, so, you know, it's tough when he's working fucking uh, Al Perez under the black mask, you know. It's a, it's a tough go. Uh, but this is a quick match. It's all of six minutes and 40 seconds. And I think... At this point in his career, Giant is pretty compelling on offense. Like he has a lot of athleticism. It's I hadn't watched an old Giant match in a long time. It's like this guy, his athleticism is wild at this age. Yeah, uh, I mean he's in his mid twenties at this point. He 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 could yeah. get around. It's he hard to believe, him. but except for the bear hug, like I thought his offense was pretty compelling. Now nobody take this out of context and go insane, but. Because he's nowhere near this level. But I think this is good for a lot of the same reasons the Vader matches are good. Is because 
Giant is just good and will like he looks menacing and will try to hit you hard and that plays well for Sting. Even though you wouldn't expect it to, like you're saying about usually with him in like uh generic giant matches. But well, like El Gigante. Like El Gigante yes, exactly. is like the perfect like one to one example when you think about size, career, ability level here with that absolutely but, and i also picked it because i thought things like giant smoking and it being a singles match for the tag titles was very funny so so, so, so for the first minute of my reaction is why you did this and i appreciate you doing that yes for sure yeah it it's something that not to go back to our current public enemy one number one here but i thought this was a three and a half star match six minutes it was well worked. It was for like the style they were working here, big, small like this. I mean, the finish came out, came off a top rope scorpion death drop. That looked awesome. Yeah. Like what, what else could you really want from this match? Like this match for what it was, it, it, is it a, is it the best match in the series? No, actually with the exception of the freedom fires matches, this might be the worst match we've, we've reviewed so far, but is it a match that I think, has value and it's something that should be that has its own merits. Yeah. I mean, Sting pulled this off. I, and I would say that you are being very generous to where giant was at, at this point in his career. But I think that most of this goes on sting, not on giant. I think this is a, a solo performance of sting. And it's something that, as I said, you should not expect from this. I like, do you think sting of part two could pull this off? Aaron? No, probably not. But the the reason I'm giving Giant credit is just because he's interesting in a oh, way yeah, that no, a he, lot of he's guys... He's very interesting. That's true. In a way that a lot of guys that Sting was, was wrestling around this time weren't. I mean, keep in mind, I watched 50 matches of Sting's in the span of like a couple weeks. You know, so... Uh, but that was, you know, months ago at this point. So it's hard for me to, to dig it all back up. But I just thought this stood out for that reason. Uh... Dave Meltzer's star rating, I'm going to give you an over-under of two and a quarter. Over-under. Under. Easy. Star and a quarter. One yeah. star and a quarter. Yeah. No. Like, like if this was two stars, I'd be stunned out, Dave. All right. All right. I thought that was great. Uh, yeah. So now he has the tag titles. He chose Kevin Nash as his partner. Uh, so then NWO Wolfpack feuded with NWO Hollywood. Sting also had a feud with Bret Hart over there. Similar finishing holds. Uh, Hart cost Sting and Nash the tag titles. Blah, blah, blah. All right. Here's, you know, I've been leading up to this. Wrestling Observer 7-13-98. It can be debated whether at this stage of the game, putting the title on Bill Goldberg was premature and a panicked reaction to being drubbed in the ratings the previous week. What can't be debated is that the lesson learned from the flop that was Sting was learned from. And once the decision was made to do it, at this time it was done right. The 31-year-old Goldberg, less than 10 months after making his televised debut, was given the WCW title by Hulk Hogan before the largest crowd in the history of the company, the fourth largest crowd for pro wrestling ever in the United States, on July 6th at the Georgia Dome and garnering without question one of the biggest pops in the history of the business. 
WCW built the television around Goldberg from start to finish, showing clips of him warming up throughout the show and opening the show with Hogan stating that Goldberg could only get a title shot if he first beat an NWO black and white member that people hadn't seen for a while, which turned out to be Scott Hall. To the first of many thunderous reactions, Goldberg planted Hall with his spear and jackhammer combination in 556. Much of the NWO black and white attempted to do the run-in, but were all laid out by chair shots delivered by DDP and Carl Malone, one of which... Page's shot on Ed Leslie was so stiff it opened Leslie up and he needed to be stitched up backstage. Um, well, no, I have to continue this. I'm sorry. Hogan, who from all accounts had no problems putting Goldberg over the right way as was originally planned. Those original plans formulated by him were for this to be a non-title and non-televised match. Such a power play. <laughs> right. <laughs> Plans that were officially changed on July 2 as a response to the previous week's rating drubbing. The current plan, subject to change in the next panic attack, are for Goldberg to keep the title for the time being and not to do a quickie back to Hogan because of the feeling that Goldberg could be the man in the business and not to screw it up as they did Sting. And Dave writes, and truthfully, a lot of that problem wasn't just the way the Hogan feud was booked, but because Sting himself had no fire in the ring when he returned. <laughs> oh man okay I... let me hit you with this last bit of hogan pop okay that you're gonna love okay all right all right so dave breaks down all the gate numbers uh actual number in the building forty one thousand four hundred and twelve. this was for a television episode folks Forty one thousand right. people in the building Realistically, the show was going to draw in excess of 30,000 fans, even without the Hogan-Goldberg match, as they had top 20,000 tickets sold several weeks in advance before the match was ever announced. And it wasn't until after the show had already shattered the company gate record that Hogan came up with the idea of putting Goldberg over in a non-title dark match so he could make it look like he drew the house. <laughs> like, objectively, cool as hell move. Absolutely. Like, brother uh, i I'll, I'll do the job we'll we'll do this here <laughs> l- 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 like one of the tremendous pieces of shit in wrestling history like just to be clear yeah, but yeah, yeah we have to recognize and celebrate someone who my god the way that hogan was able to manipulate just that one clause of his contract into doing this is just insane and then yeah no dave completely contradicting his own reporting as he's wanted to do a sting. Uh, Yeah. Uh, The famous night that also had Bobby Heenan on the way out to the cars. Bobby Heenan was with Tony Schiavone and someone else. And Tony Schiavone was like, oh, yeah, look at this, look at this. And it was him and Tanae. It was Heenan and Tanae. And and Heenan turning to Tanae is like, well, this is it. It's going downhill from here. And then it's not going to go to this. And then within... I mean, we're talking 98 within 36 months, within really 24 months. Well, the last thing that we we just read was from the July 13 edition. So Observer, July 27, so two weeks later. WCW has already taken the steam out of Goldberg's title win by not following it up and keeping the momentum going. He's got no program and the TV is still all built around Hogan. So it's like his title win meant nothing, similar to Hogan killing off the title when Sting held it. Huh, that's interesting. <laughs> About face, use this uh, to put to, to disparage Sting some more. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the 
August 24 issue, uh, Sting did not even get 10% of the votes and fell off the Hall of Fame ballot. Embarrassing. September 7, Sting signed a new seven-figure contract and no longer wants to work on Thursdays. <laughs> hey, common thing. No one wanted to work Thursdays in 1998-1999. No. October 26, 98, uh, in the overrun, which was the most watched period for pro wrestling on cable ever, uh, the Raw Angle Climax did a 6-2-5 to Nitro's 5-0-2 for the Bret Hart versus Sting match, an angle that over the past three weeks has been a surprisingly hot ratings draw. Huh. I wonder. Sting and Hart squared off at Halloween Havoc, where Hart, the United States champion, attacks Sting with a baseball bat, putting Sting out of action for several months. Uh, November 298, Dave writes, Some talk of keeping Sting out of action until as late as January after the angle at Havoc. It's a great job if you can get it. <laughs> hey, I mean, look, like, considering the shit sandwiches Sting ate, like, getting to take all that time off. Getting all yeah. getting the seven figures. I mean, if you're awarding on tenure, he's the guy who deserves it, especially at this time period. And like, like you have to consider the fact that like Sting never left. So like, yeah, yeah. no, in a just locker room that doesn't have the greatest politician of all time, you know, he's getting his just desserts instead. You're asking for the wrong things, brother. I mean, you might not want to yep. ask for Thursday, but there's one clause that you have seen for the last three years being played out in front of you that you're not asking for. Yeah, man. Really awful uh, backstage. Like, like I'm sorry. I, I know we love saying, dude couldn't like tell like an advantageous position for him from a hole in the ground. No. He, like, in all of this, I think we've reported... We didn't report it, but we've discussed one time Sting refused to do a job. And it's like people were refusing like every week to do jobs <laughs> throughout Sting's entire career, basically. So, And people with like a lot less star power, too. Yeah. Uh, Observer November 998, Sting was pulled from all bookings for the rest of the year. So as it stands right now, the story he was going to sell the injury until early 99 is correct. Apparently, he's been given time off to work on those same family problems that crop up at one time or another. So nearly all wrestlers who spend so much time away from home. Uh, and then the next month, December 1498, our reports of Sting signing a five-year deal at $1 million per were incorrect. It was actually a four-year deal at significantly more than that figure, maybe along the lines of $6.5 over the next four years. In actuality, after Hogan, Austin, and Hart, Sting will probably be the next highest paid wrestler in the business. Which, 98. So, we're still, we're still before The Rock really took off. Yeah. So, when you list at least North American stars, I mean, Austin, Hogan, Michaels, Hart, Sting, and Michaels and Sting at this point, I, I would say is arguably the same level of importance and star power. I would say so, you know, if we're saying that it's based off merit, you know, that makes sense. I mean, the, the only other thing is that Steve Austin was not getting paid near as much as they were at that time. Right. So. And, and that's kind of my whole thing is that I don't think like people that we run in the same, not even the people we run in the same circles as, but, you know, 
people that we would hear talk or, or see tweet about things don't consider Sting in that group of wrestlers, but he is. As a star, he is. He, he might be the most unassuming star of yeah. this or many generations before that. Yeah. Uh, Observer 98 Award, Sting shows up in only one, which was most overrated. Hulk Hogan won. Sting came in ninth. Uh, just to... I'll keep running down the Observer readership. Bill Goldberg came, came in fourth, most overrated. How the fuck could you have watched wrestling in 1998 and thought Goldberg was overpushed? I mean, the same. Was, the people went fucking insane for this guy. I, I mean, you're also looking at like 98 with this readership, though. Sure. I mean, and, I know he couldn't fucking work his way out of a paper bag. I get that. Right. But... Yeah. God damn. No. I, I mean, the disconnect between the readership and reality, really. Yeah. Uh, Observer, January 18, 1999. Um, basically, just a dumb match happens on Nitro. Uh, but <laughs> they all turned on him, complete with Hall shooting him up with a taser. Just thought that I'd include that. But then it says, fans chanted for Goldberg, then for Sting. Chants for Sting were real loud, which was impressive since he hasn't been around for months. Yeah, I wonder why, wonder why that was. Uh, Sting came back to Nitro in March 99. Uh, he was still in the Crow gimmick. Uh, Sting wasn't really aligned with any factions. Um, you know, he was just kind of hanging around. Um, but, I mean, he was in some of the, the top stuff. But it's like Hogan, DDP, uh, Flair was the champion at the time. Uh, and ultimately, DDP won uh, the title. Uh, in a four corners match with the help of Randy Savage. And this led into Sting versus Diamond Dallas Page uh, on April 26, 1999. This is the last match we'll discuss on this uh, part of This Is Sting. Uh, and I can go ahead and tell you why I picked this match, Mike, if you want me to tell you first before you, you tell me your reaction to it. Sure. Uh, it was just that, so this is almost a 20-minute match. And my point here was, this is probably the fairest look you can get at a long, mostly straight-ahead match featuring Sting against a guy who isn't a super worker. So, you know, it's not a 20-minute match with Flair. Um, it's DDP on the other side. They go 20 minutes. There's no... It's not like a walk and brawl. It's not a plunder match. It's just a straight ahead match. And I just thought it was important to see Sting at this time in his career having a, a regular ass 20 minute match with a regular ass wrestler. Yeah. And a DDP is kind of the perfect person for that because uh, the rep of DDP was that he got into wrestling late, not a tremendous worker, and insanely over. Like there's a reason why he became champion and you listed off like he was always shortly behind Sting in merch sales, but known as like probably one of the most methodical wrestlers and, and like at a time where people really started getting to laying out stuff, DDP would like basically have a notebook where he would write out the match ahead of time. So yeah, the, the, this is the fair valuation for Sting. And I like this a lot. I thought that 
that like bring talking about DDP, reassessing DDP. But like he's like the one person that is like more indicative of this is what being over in the right period of time is for you, <laughs> especially considering his age and his career, like really being more known as a manager before this run. Uh, just like it's, it, it's think the easiest baby face for a heel to work with in recent memory, because like just like the easy stuff to get reactions, like working with Sting versus add your other replacement level baby face upper mid card main eventer like the crowd because there's a lot of low blows in this match this match is a low blow city but each time it would happen against sting that the crowd was into it that that was like my conclusion that coming out of this match is sting might be the best like baby face pure baby face for a heel to work against because may ddp look like a conniving heel champion and the baby face overcomes this uh we had the diamond cutter into the scorpion death drop and a sick little bit of a closing stretch and i went four stars on this man i thought that this was all right i thought that this was really rad you know uh ddp was better than i remembered and you know stings now firmly in this veteran role that we'll see over the last uh I guess really we'll be talking up to 2016, the last 16 years of his career. He's now firmly in that position of being the um, capable vet. And I felt like we saw that in this match. Absolutely. I, funny. I'm not as high on it. I'm like, I'm about three and a half on it. Um, but I just thought it was really important to see. I think you can see the good and bad of sting in this. Uh, I, if you watch this match, anybody, your view on this match will probably tell you what you think about Sting. You know, may, you know, maybe not 1984 Sting, but you know, uh, right in the the middle of his oh God, I guess actually the middle of his career when you <laughs> look yeah. at how long he's been working now. But but he's the he's now the for the with the exception of what we've seen him in AEW, he's fully fledged Sting at this point. There's no more growth. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the crowd still responds to him big. There's a great finish here. So th- there's a lot, a lot good about this. Uh, but it also very, ties in. A very funny sell of the uh, diamond cutter from Sting in this match <laughs> yes. as well. Yes. Uh, it also ties in to just the way WCW handled Sting. Uh, first of all, Dave also really liked this match and went four stars on it. Uh, so this was on an episode of Nitro. Uh, and later that night, there was a four-way between Bill Goldberg, Kevin Nash, DDP, and Sting, and it went seven minutes and 47 seconds with Savage throwing an object to Paige who hit Nash with it and gave him the diamond cutter for the pin. Dave writes, that Nash is so generous to do the job in this situation. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so on the same match, they had Sting lose a four-way to lose the title and not get pinned. Uh, and Dave finally. And boy, did Sting come out looking like a weenie. There's nothing worse for killing a run than four weeks after returning being world champion for less than two hours. Man, Steve, have a bit of a backbone, man. Yeah, there's no way he should have agreed to do this. No fucking yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. Instead of maybe you work Thursday so you can say, no, that doesn't work for me, brother. Just the man is like 
might be the most giving person in the wrestling industry just for what he would agree to. Yeah, he just he didn't seem to have a much um thought for protecting himself as a character. Uh so uh, he made a lot of money, so maybe that was fine yeah. with him. Real estate Steve is a real thing, you know? Yeah. And then it uh goes downhill for Sting. Uh I'll just hit some low notes. Sting lost to Rick Steiner in a Falls Count Anywhere match at the Great American Bash after he was attacked by Steiner's three pet dogs backstage. And Steiner forced the referee to prematurely declare himself the victor, claiming his dogs had pinned Sting for him. Yep, sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Um, dogs. Right. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Oh, it gets worse, though. Uh, but this is just a, a good note. Uh, Observer, July 19, 1999. Sting did a lengthy interview for John Patton in the Miami Herald on July 9th. When asked if wrestlers need to unionize, he said yes, saying it's hard for them to get life and medical insurance. Woke Man. King, Steve Borden. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, taking it from another Woke King, Terry Funk, saying go work side, go get insured that way, taking it to the next level, you know? You love to see it. Absolutely. September of that year, uh, Fall Brawl. The the big deal here is they did the only Sting heel turn. Sting turned heel. heel. He won the title from Hogan. Um, but even Dave, to his to his credit, points out there have been so many turns in WCW that like the 88 version of the of the Crockett company when they finally turned the perennial baby faces heel it meant nothing at the box office because fans had seen so many turns so quickly that no turns could make them care fans stopped coming and the only reason the company avoided bankruptcy is because Ted Turner bought it to retain highly rated television programming the point here is that for the sting turn to mean anything it would have been best to hold off all turns for several months so a turn would seem like something new and then when it was sting it would mean something. Uh, of course, they didn't. And so the fans just kept cheering Sting regardless. So it 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 flopped. A man too popular to then to turn heel. Yes. And like years after the fact of it mattering and doing it in such a way that Aaron, a- until I was reviewing my own notes for tonight, I forgot that WCW tried to turn him a heel. Like straight yep. up did not remember that there was an aborted heel turn. Most people think Sting has never been a heel. Um, and you can forgive them for not knowing about, you know, his run in uh, Memphis. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or even, you know, some of the hot stuff international uh, run. But, but uh, he, de- yeah, he had a, a heel run in WCW. Did that really happen or or did you start <laughs> doing deep state off editing Wikipedia, making sure that so that I believe you that Sting turned heel in WCW? Like I I want to believe you, Aaron, but I am a very foolhardy person. So this, this is a real Baron Sting Bears moment. Okay, in that case you're not making it up because that's such a bad pun that it, <laughs> it, 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 it if you did make this up, I would expect you to like have a have a pun that you at least put a little bit of thought into it. This is real. Fine. This happened. We haven't done a uh, WCW power change in a while. October 11, 99. Vince Russo and Ed Ferreira 
the men who are responsible for writing the WWF television shows that have been drawing huge ratings for the past year abruptly quit the company and signed on with WCW over the weekend. I remember this being like a big thing when I was 13. Like, Absolutely. I w- l- like uh, when you're 13 years old in 1998, you go find the site that does the best job of scraping the Observer or what you believe to be the Observer at the time. And I remember logging on to that site that I would go to try to find out wrestling news as a little goober ass, a 13 year old in 1999 and seeing that the writers jumped and I was like, holy crap, that's huge. And said that probably accelerated the inevitable decline of WCW. Absolutely. Observer, October 1899. Sting is wanting to be turned back babyface already. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he knew. All right. Well, here's uh, this is basically the big, the big finish here. Uh, Observer, November one ninety nine, Halloween Havoc. They did the Hogan Sting angle next, so fans would boo it heavily, but still have three ma- three more matches left in the show to forget about it. Uh, Hogan at first didn't come out, even though his music played. Finally, he came out in street clothes, whispered something to Sting, and laid down. And Sting covered him, and the ref counted three. No bell sounded to start the match. They immediately cut to a clip of Goldberg with the abrupt cut designed to make people think what happened wasn't supposed to. The idea, as this was designed, would be Sting's later agreeing to wrestle after this fiasco showed he was a babyface all along and a fighting champion. It wasn't made as clear to the fans what this was all about, i.e., writers ordering Hogan to do a job as it needed to be, and with no following up on television the next day, it came off like a silly exercise in masturbation. As <laughs> Dave likes to say. <laughs> Just loves a cranking an allergy. Analogies. Yeah. He does. Oh. You should yeah. have gotten creative control. I'm actually mad for staying. Right. Yeah. Well, it actually gets worse, Mike. Later that night, in the height of what appeared to be disorganization, Goldberg pinned Sting and was given the WCW heavyweight title in 308. Uh, no ref showed up. Sting seemed visibly upset by the lack of organization backstage. Finally, Robinson, who was beaten up by the in the previous match by DDP, came out showing no signs of battle weariness, nor even with a hair out of place. Tony Schiavone then announced this as a non-title match. The show was already running long by this point, so they had to rush, didn't have time to do much. Um... Anyway, Goldberg won and was given the title, even though it was announced as a non-title match. That Ed Ferreira and Vince Russo, they were really castrating the marks even back in 99. Uh, They were. uh, On Nitro, Sting was like, hey, what the fuck? Uh, I should get the title. This was was messed up. And J.J. Dillon agreed with him, but told him they were stripping the belt from him because he attacked Charles Robinson after the match. Yeah. Yeah, man, this is this is real bad vibes right now, and I'm struggling with it. Yeah, uh, Sting did finally turn back face. Uh, he shook hands with with Bret Hart after a match, and and that was his uh, face turn. And then in the Observer, December 6, nineteen ninety nine. Uh, at this point, at this point, Tori Wilson's character has been dropped after a contract dispute. She was looking for two hundred and fifty thousand per year on a three year deal. All I can say is if they had any clue how to market, she'd be a deal at that price. Uh, if you look at how ratings have risen and fallen based on her appearance, her worth from a rating standpoint, and we know this company lives and dies by that, is sandwiched by Sting, $1.6 million a year, Flair, 800000 
And then he talks about how Flair is underpaid. And Scott Hall, $1.6 million. So just pointing out, you know, how much money Sting is making. Uh, Sting sought out revenge against Luger at Starcade, won by DQ, uh, and putting out putting Sting out of action for some time. And this is really, I'm going to uh, stick the landing here. Sting ended his feud with Luger by defeating him in a Lumberjacks with Casts match at Uncensored the following March. I respect the fact that they ha- that they brought back that uh, Bill Watts feeling with that, like yeah. straight out of UWF nineteen eighty two. Let's go. Yep. Dumb yeah. as hell for ninety nine. Dumb as hell for ninety nine. But Bill Watts yep. probably saw this, uh, said a couple slurs, and you know was happy <laughs> to see that something that uh, would have come from his mind. I would. Argue. Yes. The 99 Observer Awards, the only mention of Sting, was in Most Overrated, uh, which Kevin Nash won, and uh, Sting was an honorable mention. Uh, But that closes 1999, and that's going to close part three. Part four, when we get around to doing it, is uh, the plan, at least, is to cover WCW 2000, uh, Sting's TNA run, and then Sting's WWE run to, to close out this series. Do you think, Mike, we can do that in one episode? We have to, man. <laughs> I, I feel like we will, if only because of the reporting will be less frequent for a long time for him with how Dave covers uh, really his peak time and impact. So I think we'll be okay in that regard. But yeah, ah oh, man, there's going to be some funny stuff, though. Like, that's the thing. Like, we're going to have to at least mention WWA. And that's wild enough. Yeah, we will have some fun with WCW 2000. We're going to do Sting against Vampiro. Yes. Which is a a great match. Uh, We're going to do the last Nitro match ever against Ric Flair. Uh, And then, right, I figure there'll be some reporting on Sting uh, and whether he would go to WWE at that time. Uh, Then we'll talk about TNA. Uh, We're going to look at him against AJ Styles in 2009. Then we're going to uh, talk about his match with Hulk Hogan in 2011. <laughs> uh, and yeah, then we'll, we'll do the, uh, the triple H match from his WWE run. The, this is going to be the weirdest one. Uh, it, I know. It, it, like we're going to talk about Fusient. Like, yeah, Fusient, uh, just a lot of random shell corporations is going to be the major top. I'm going to we need to get this in one episode, so I'm going to try really hard to just focus on these the periods right around these matches, like the news we need to have about them. Um, Fair enough. But I'm sure I will go off the deep end if I know myself. I I, I mean, we're Jamie Keller, uh, Andrew McManus, Dixie Carter. Those are just some of the greats that we'll be talking. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, it's about two hours. I think that's basically what we shoot for yeah, uh, on these episodes. So that's pretty good. Uh, that's This is Sting Part 3. We'll be back at some time in the future. We'll put up the, the This Is signal, and uh, Part 4 will come your way. Yeah, we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.